Hosea chapter 9. Hosea chapter 9. You should find it on or near page 756. Um, somewhere in that vicinity. Um, again, as we uh, continue in our series uh, in the book of Hosea. Hosea 9, would you give your attention to the reading of God's word? Rejoice not, O Israel. Exult not like the peoples, for you have played the whore, forsaking your God. You have loved a prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. Threshing floor and wine vat shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail them. They shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. They shall not pour drink offerings of wine to the Lord, and their sacrifices shall not please Him. It shall be like mourner's bread to them. All who eat of it shall be defiled, for the bread shall be for their hunger only. It shall, come to the, it shall not come to the house of the Lord. What will you do on the day of the appointed festival and on the day of the feast of the Lord? For behold, they are going away from destruction. But Egypt shall gather them. Memphis shall bury them. Nettles shall possess their precious things of silver. Thorns shall be in their tents. The days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool. The man of the spirit is mad because of your great iniquity and great hatred. The prophet is the watchman of Ephraim with my God. Yet a fowler snares on all his ways and hatred in the house of his God. They have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. He shall remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. But they came to Baal Peor and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if they bring up children, I will bereave them till none is left. Woe to them. When I depart from them, Ephraim, as I have seen, was like a young palm planted in a meadow. But Ephraim must lead his children out to slaughter. Give them, O Lord, what will you give them? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. Every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. There I began to hate them because of the wickedness of their deeds. I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. Ephraim is stricken, their root is dried up, they shall bear no fruit. Even though they give birth, I will put their beloved children to death. My God will reject them because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. And we pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would be at work. Uh, Use this, your word, to root out sin in our lives, to grow us in our love for Christ and in our gratefulness for a faithful, obedient Savior. We ask all of this in his name. Amen. You You know the saying, you are what you eat. I guess it's true enough, right? I mean... 
you know, if you're if you if you make your whole diet around fast food burgers and sweet tea and milkshakes, eventually your body will come to reflect that, right? I mean, the scale will tell you, your blood work will tell you, all sorts of things will begin to go wrong physically, I suppose, at some level you are what you eat. I wonder, though, why we never think that that could be true spiritually just like it is physically, right? I mean, physically, what we take in kind of becomes a a part of who we are and it affects a lot of things about our bodies. And we don't bring that same thought into our spiritual lives. Okay, we know Jesus said that it's not what goes into your mouth that makes you unclean because what goes into your mouth eventually just comes out. The key organ spiritually isn't the stomach, it's the heart. And, and part of the picture is that we become more and more like the thing that we love. Where our heart is, in fact, this was sort of Part of our New Testament reading in Matthew 6 just a few minutes ago, part of of where our heart is affects the things that we set our heart and our affections on affects what we become and who we are. I suppose spiritually speaking, we don't become what we eat. We become what we love. Maybe you're thinking, hold on, I'm not so sure about this. Ask Gollum. Smeagol was a normal, everyday hobbit. Okay, a different kind of hobbit, different, different strand of hobbit than Bilbo and Frodo, to be fair. But still, just a hobbit. Just a normal, everyday hobbit. Until the ring came along. And his great desire, his longing, his love, his affections, everything about him became That ring. And in many ways, Smeagol was uncreated to Gollum. The effect of his love for that ring, he became like the thing that he loved. He became more and more like that. Well, that's the message of Hosea 9. Israel, the people of God in Hosea's day, became what they loved. First, I want you to see that they loved personal pleasure more than God's provision in verses 1 through 6. There's a picture of a a harvest festival. God gives the harvest. God causes the rain to fall and causes the crops to grow, the the grain to grow. And he provides for uh, the fields and he provides all that is is needed for these crops and for the the gathering of the crops and when it came time for harvest you do realize they didn't have gps enabled tractors and combines they had to go out you know they kind of had to gather the city together and go out and work from dawn to dusk and and pick the grain and sift the grain and separate the peas and all that sort of stuff. it it was it was a, a long arduous process and god had given israel two 
feasts actually surrounding the harvest. One at the very beginning, uh, the feast of first fruits, right? The harvest begins, you take in a little bit, you rejoice that, that this is the, the first fruits of what God has given to his people. At the end of harvest season, another festival, another feast to celebrate God's care for them that he had seen the, the harvest through. And so as they finished the harvest and gathered everything in, they would then celebrate. They would then feast together. I suppose there's an aside here. We would do well to develop a biblically informed theology of celebration. Like that's, that's a thing. That's, that's a pattern we see in Scripture. You can actually develop a, a biblically thoughtful, biblically grounded theology of celebrating. Twice Israel was supposed to celebrate something as every day as harvest. Because it was a reflection of God's care for them. It was a reflection of God's provision for them. They're called to celebrate God's provision. Just think about how Christmas works for us, right? We walk through December completely oblivious to a whole lot, except there's a whole lot of stuff I've got to buy and I got to make sure I get the right gifts and I spend more money than I should. And I've got to make sure I go to all the parties and eat more than I should. And I've got to go to work parties and family parties and neighborhood parties. And there's just all this stuff going on that demand all my time and all my attention. And at the end of it all, we go, whew, I'm glad that's over. Are, are we celebrating office parties or are we celebrating God, the Father, providing the Son for our salvation? I'm not saying it's wrong to have our office parties. Don't, don't run too far. I'm simply saying that when the church loses sight of God's provision in exchange for our own personal pleasure, we're walking on dangerous ground. This harvest festival had become... Um, a bit of a debauched gathering, quite honestly. Uh, it got to where, you know, the harvest, it's all day. We, we A bunch of tired, celebrating, probably drunk men all sleeping around the grain together. Because you got to stay there because somebody will come along and steal it. You can't just leave it in a pile and go home at the end of it all and and assume it'll still be there in the morning. And so frequently they slept around the grain. Well... Prostitutes started to figure out that there were a lot of tired, drunk men hanging out at the grain. So that's where they went. And the people gave themselves freely to them. And so there's this picture then of Israel delighting in prostitutes' wages, verse 1. They had turned a feast to God and of God into their own personal pleasure reward. A, a feast, a, a celebration that God had commanded had become affected and infected by the pagan religious practices of the world around them, the nation's 
around them. In fact, one writer actually wrote, the paganization of Israel's faith is an act of unfaithful prostitution against God. What a great term, the paganization of Israel's faith. The harvest feast had become something that... um, that Israelites from the olden days would not have recognized. Now, that doesn't mean the good old days are better than the new days. What it suggests is the date had been changed. The season had been changed. The first king of the northern tribes, Jeroboam, had had moved the location, the time, had changed all sorts of things about it. And the effect of the Assyrian nation nearby, the gradual embracing of Baal worship and of the, the gods of the nations had so changed this, this feast, this festival, that it was no longer what God had commanded them to do. This involved all sorts of pagan, even sexual practices. I know, I guess, I guess we're sort of confident, right? Well, at least we're not doing that. At least the church today isn't really doing that as part of worship, right? At least that sort of pagan sexuality isn't in the church institution in our worship. But how do we decide what qualifies as the paganization of Christian worship and celebration. There's a, a warning here that, that we not look too much to the devices of the world around us, that we not embrace too much of the culture around us to accommodate the culture and to bring that into the life of the church and introduce it, um, those ideas into the worship of God or into the life of the church because those are, those are outside and, and foreign concepts you say, oh well hold on more people would come right we could reach more people if we did some of these things i'm pretty sure that was an argument in hosea 9 i mean of course more people are going to be there look what it's turned into but the but ultimately they didn't have their practices didn't have anything to do with the god of israel and so for that Israel will be carried off by Assyria. See, there's a, there's a bit of a principle there. What, what we win people by is what we win them to. If we win them by the things of this world, that's all we're winning them to. We want to win people to Christ and to his word, not to the things of the world around us, not to ideas of, of personal Pleasure and gratification. And so verse 5 and 6. Israel would cease to exist. Israel would be carried off. Some it seemed escaped to Egypt. But Memphis the city. Not only had pyramids. But had an extensive graveyard. And tombs. And so the people there. Would lose their possessions. They would even lose their lives. So there's punishment then for seeking their own personal pleasure rather than celebrating God's provision. Second, Israel loved worldly wisdom more than God's word. Look at verses 7 through 9. 
So there are three offices in the Old Testament. You will read about the king. You'll read about the priest. You'll read about the prophet. And all three of those people are intended to point us to Jesus. Jesus is the true king. Jesus is the true prophet. In fact, we saw that Hebrews 1. Jesus is the true priest. And all of those offices, those three different people, three different offices were all intended to aim at the one Messiah that would come and deliver God's people. He is our prophet. He is our priest. He is our king. And the prophet's job was to be the mouthpiece of God for the people of God. His job was to take God's word when God had a message and it. You can read through the prophets and you will frequently find the phrase, thus says the Lord. You know, if, if a letter comes in the mail from the IRS, you'll probably pay attention. If an invitation comes in the mail with a, a presidential a seal on it, you'd probably read it pretty carefully. Perhaps people even save old sort of love notes from husband, a wife, a then boyfriend or a girlfriend, save them in a box. But how often do you really go back and read them? But the picture here is of a people who had decided that the word of the King and Lord of heaven and earth was not worth their time. We'll gladly, we'll make sure, I've got to read this message from the IRS. This could be serious. But if it comes from, you know, the creator of heaven and earth, eh, is it really that important? Is it really that big a deal? That's the, the picture here. They had decided to ignore the message of God because they had rejected his messengers. In fact, notice verse 7. Uh, the prophet is a fool. That's Israel's words. That's not God's words. That's not Hosea's words. He's recounting Israel's thoughts back. In fact, you can go read 2 Kings 9. And Elisha goes to meet with Jehu. And when Elisha leaves, King Jehu comes back out of, the, out of the room after their conversation. And his buddies go, what did that madman want with you? The prophet Elisha, he's mad. Jeremiah, he's mad. That's the, the picture, the description. They had decided that those who came with God's word, with God's message of hope or of punishment were crazy and not worth listening to. In fact, for that matter, verse 8, the prophet stands on a wall like a, a military sentry, right? You post sentries every so often on the city wall so they can keep an eye out for military threat, right? You see the cloud of dust. You begin to see figures you can warn the people because there's danger coming. You don't have to wait until they're actually walked through the door to discover that they're there. And in that way, the, the prophet is a watchman. He stands on the wall watching for the threat of God's punishment for his people. 
calling out the warnings, turning around. There's danger coming. There's punishment coming. Watch out. Be careful. That's really the context of this whole chapter. The prophet sees the danger. He sees the threat. He sees the punishment coming. But the people of Israel have chosen to follow worldly wisdom from the nations around them. They've embraced Baal. They've embraced the gods of of Assyria. They've embraced the gods of Egypt. They've embraced the gods of the world, the nations around them, and have ignored the God who delivered them and set them up in this land to begin with, who brought them out of Egypt already. And there's even a sense in which they're going back to Egypt. They're going to Assyria. They're going to be scattered. But it's like undoing that deliverance. They have forsaken the one who called them and redeemed them and delivered them. They've rejected the one who alone has words of life. You can see the danger for churches today. You can see the danger for believers today. Right? Do we do we treat God's word more like that love note from an ex? It's in a box. It's somewhere. Who knows where it is? And every now and then you may pull it out or every now and then you may bump into it. Or is it part and parcel to our life? It is, is, it, is it influencing the way we live and think? Are we renewing our minds after God's word? He, uh, Romans 12. Or for that matter, how many churches are following the guidance of the latest political polls or social media trends? How many churches today are forsaking the clear teaching of God's word in exchange for what amounts to Worldly wisdom, forsaking God's word for the wisdom of the world around them. In fact, that that level of corruption, verse nine, is is a level on par with the days of Gibeah. Your Sunday afternoon reading is Judges chapter 19. As a concubine is chopped into 12 pieces and sent one piece to each of the 12 tribes. And then Israel as a nation turned on Benjamin for his guilt. When you hear concubine chopped into 12 pieces, you get a little sick in your stomach. That's the level of iniquity here. That's the the parallel. That's the comparison that Hosea has for the corruption in Israel in Hosea 9. Israel in Hosea's day is at that same level of wickedness, that same level of corruption as the atrocities that went on in the days of Gibeah. They've loved, uh, Israel has loved uh, personal pleasure more than God's provision, worldly wisdom more than God's word. Third, Israel loved false religion more than God's favor. Look at verses 10 through 13. Where does someone actually find grapes in a wilderness? And that word's really kind of desert. It's the same sort of idea, right? Where do you actually, the point is you don't. Right. I mean, and if you did, you would be surprised 
and you would be overjoyed. Both of those would be true. It's not common to find grapes in the wilderness, but that's sort of the point. The likelihood of Israel having been delivered, of Israel having been redeemed, is as likely as finding grapes in the wilderness. And yet, that is their past. That is their story. And God is the one who found them. God is the one who delivered them. God saw their fathers, he called them, he pursued them, he delivered them. And the picture is they have God's favor without earning it. They have it because of his grace. We do realize that, you know, if you're walking through the wilderness and you stumble upon grapes, you would not know that, right? That would be a surprise to you. If you walked up to the square and a lion was roaming around the square, that would be a surprise to you. It would catch you off guard. We do realize God's not caught off guard like that when he finds Israel. It's not finding Israel in the sense of, oh, look what's here. I had no idea. It's found in the sense of I came and got you. So there's this picture then of their dependence on his grace and uh, their need for him and the unlikelihood of their deliverance. If you found grapes in the wilderness, you would be surprised. But you would also be, you would also sort of celebrate that. You'd rejoice in that. I mean, imagine the, 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 not just the surprise, but the, the, the sort of visible and audible discovery of grapes. Just, just take a walk with Nancy. Go for a hike with Nancy. And find wild blueberries like in Maine. Or a columbine flower next to a high alpine lake in Colorado. She literally, visibly and verbally responds. There's a, there's a sort of recoiling and a, hey, y'all, these are blueberries. I think there's something in that, in the way this is pictured for us. God doesn't simply begrudgingly go and get Israel. But there's a rejoicing in finding Israel in the wilderness. There's not simply a, a, um, a, I found you, but it was my delight to find you. Just like it would be your delight to find grapes in a desert. Right? And so Israel should understand that, that her relationship to God hinges on his grace, which is and was something he delighted to give was something he rejoiced to give to his people. He delighted in delivering them from Egypt and setting them down in the land that he had promised to Abraham. But the picture here is that Israel decided to throw all of that away in exchange for an idol. Israel threw that whole relationship away in exchange for Baal. They chose to consecrate themselves to idols instead of the God who loved and redeemed them. In fact, it, verse 10, did you notice the phrase? Became detestable like the thing they loved. 
Isn't that how we're sort of supposed to react to Gollum? He became detestable like the thing that he loved. The people became detestable like this idol, like this false religion that they loved. Israel was the wife who rejected her husband while on their honeymoon. But finally, I want you to see the consequence of these loves. Verses 14 to 17, ultimately Israel is rejected. Do you remember the promises that God gave to Abraham? Right? When God entered into his covenant with Abraham, the promises that he made, the the things he said, I will give to you. He gave, he promised Abraham, look, you're going to have descendants. Of course, Abraham's like, I mean, I've got a, I've got a servant. That's my inheritor right there. Like I don't have promised him descendants like the stars in the sky, like the sand on the shore. He promised to take him and set him down in a place, a land that would belong to him. And he promised that he would be with him forever. Right. You can, you can summarize that he promised him people a place, and his presence. Notice that all three of those are undone in verses 14 to 17. We can watch as God's covenant promises are gradually taken away because of Israel's unfaithfulness. Look at verse 11, for example. Israel's glory shall be Uh, Glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Verse 14, give them, what what are you going to give them? A miscarrying womb and dry breasts. No people. Israel's descendants are being cut off. The promise made to Abraham is coming undone because of Israel's wickedness. The result is no children, no offspring. Or look at verse 17. Uh, My God will reject them because they have not listened to him. They will be wanderers among the nations. Wanderers don't have a place to live. They wander because they don't have a home. The place that God had promised taken from them because uh, so now they're called to wander. Now they've been called out of the nations to be distinct, to be apart. To belong to him. To have a wholehearted married relationship with God in Israel. In the promised land. And that is all being stripped from them. For that matter. As God rejects them. Verse 17. They no longer have his presence. Every benefit of the covenant that God made with Abraham would disappear because Israel would not delight in God's provision, God's word, or God's favor. And the reality is this passage reminds us we are just like that. Apart from his grace, we are just like that. We don't love God with our heart, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We don't delight in His provision and seek His glory. Which means, aren't you thankful for the greater Israel? 
Aren't you thankful that Jesus does what Israel could not? Aren't you glad? Aren't you grateful that Jesus does what we could not? Because ultimately, Jesus found great delight in God's provision for him. It was his food to do the will of his father. What he did was instructed by the father. He delighted in the father's favor. He pursued the father's glory. Where Israel failed, where you and I fail, Jesus alone succeeded. Jesus alone fulfilled. But here's the thing. Jesus doesn't come simply to give us a get out of hell free card. Okay, there, now that's done. You've got your get out of hell free card. I'm going to go do something else. You go on about your business. And when you need this, just make sure you show this at the gate. No, he actually came to do more than that. He doesn't simply give us our get out of hell free card. He comes to change us. He comes to renew us after his image in our whole being. In other words, he comes so that we might grow to love him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if we become what we love, we, by his grace, by his word, by the work of the spirit in our lives, because he is transforming us, we become like him. We don't become God. We don't become God's. But we are renewed and recreated so that what the ring undid, Jesus remakes. Jesus rebuilds. May God, by his grace, continue that work in us. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your love for us, unworthy as we are, rebellious as we are. Uh, Lord Jesus, we are thankful that you fulfilled where we failed, uh, that you uh, offered your complete and perfect obedience in place of our active and frequently joyful disobedience. Uh, we thank you for uh, grace found in your blood and your righteousness, even as we sang a few minutes ago, that our salvation is grounded in the blood that you shed to pay for our sin, the righteousness that you have that we need that is credited to our account that made you an acceptable sacrifice. And so would you grant to us more love to you? We ask this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.